Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're going to try and pull together the threads of our series about the future of the Union by talking about how devolved government looks from the centre, from Westminster. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Joining Helen and me today, it's a pleasure to welcome back Mike Kenny, Professor of Public Policy. And Mike is the co-author of a new report that's been getting a lot of coverage called Union at the Crossroads. And it is precisely about this question. Since devolution, since 1999, as seen from Westminster, the government of the UK hasn't made a lot of sense. I think, Mike, it's fair to say your report concludes that there isn't a lot of coherence in the history of the last 20 years of UK governance. But there's also been new developments all the time over that period, but particularly in the last few years. Should we try and frame it historically and then come to the present? I mean, we're talking recent history here, the last 20 and a bit years. One of the things that you identify in the report is that the original settlement, it's called a settlement, but there was nothing settled about it. Welsh and Scottish devolution and then Northern Irish devolution as part of that. There was almost no thought given to how it would work. Is that fair, as seen from a UK perspective, not in the devolved administrations, but from a UK perspective, it's a history of people not thinking about it? I think there are a number of different features of the devolution reforms, which do lend themselves to a sense at the centre that really things can carry on as they were, which sounds paradoxical because, I mean, these are clearly very significant, indeed quite momentous reforms for the governance of Scotland and Wales, and then by a different kind of process, Northern Ireland. But I think some of the ways in which those reforms were introduced reinforced a sort of enduring, quite deeply rooted sense in Whitehall and Westminster that these sort of territorial issues were somehow marginal to the concerns of the state. So I think two things I'd pick up on. I mean, one is that if you think about the process of devolution, I mean, what really happens in Scotland and Wales particularly is that legislative institutions, new institutions are created and they are grafted onto an existing system of administrative devolution because the affairs, many of the issues relating to Scotland and Wales were previously managed through the territorial departments of state, through the Scottish office and through the Welsh office. And so devolution extends that process. I mean, it changes it by bringing the you know, legislative institutions into play. But still, the sense is for the rest of the state, well, you know, these issues are managed elsewhere. And the other thing I think about the way in which these reforms happen is that, particularly in the Scottish case, the passing powers, responsibilities wholesale for things like health and education in quite a clearly demarcated way does also lend itself to the idea, well, those new institutions are going to run those things. We here at the centre we retain responsibilities for what are called the reserved competencies. Those are issues of statewide concern. And the idea that there's a sort of clear demarcation between those is quite important because I think it means that the model doesn't have a sense of partnership built into it. It really is pushing powers away to other authorities. And so 
this idea that that actually things can carry on as they were and that we can devolve and then rather forget about it, that I think is enabled by those features of the reforms. I think that the crucial thing here is that there's a political assumption or a political context that underpins the devolutionary moves in the end of the, the 90s, and that is that Labour is not only the party in power, but that it's going to be the party in power for the foreseeable future. Tony Blair really thinks that he's remade British politics to the extent that the Labour Party is now the natural party of government. And then that will apply not only at Westminster, but that will apply in Edinburgh and Cardiff as well. So if you say, well, how was the cooperation supposed to work? It was supposed to work through the Labour Party. I think the one qualification that we could make to the complacency of the original devolution moves is there was some awareness around Blair that there was an English issue, but he thought, or he and his advisors thought, that it could be dealt with, and perhaps even particularly Gordon Brown thought, it could be dealt with by basically regionalising England. And then once that strategy failed, and part of the reason why that failed was the referendum in the in the North East that was lost by a big margin, there was no other place for a Labour government to go where the English question was concerned. And, and as that was beginning to play itself out, things were beginning to change in Edinburgh because we get to 2007 and then the SNP become the, the largest party in the Scottish Parliament. I'd add to that, an important element of the reforms that do come in is an attempt to build a system for bringing together the different governments that have been created. It's a really very insipid and rather casually created model. And that's, I think, really important because if you look at most other countries that have gone in a more devolved direction or indeed that are fully federal, it's a very common feature of them that they have some sort of machinery for having intergovernmental conversations. And I mean, this was created in the UK context. Very little effort was put into it. And mostly that was for the reason Helen gives, that actually Labour was in power everywhere. So, you know, why create an additional formal machinery where you can just have public rows? But I think that's become quite fateful because the lack of a sort of proper, systematic, regularised conversation has actually really become important when things have got more difficult and when it would have been extremely useful for functional reasons and indeed for trying to build political relationships to have those conversations. Brexit and the pandemic have made clear the need for this formal mechanism so that the different parts of the United Kingdom can talk to each other. But you mentioned that it was casual before that, but also there was a default assumption that somehow it wasn't needed because the lines were clear, health, education, whatever, that belongs here, we do the other stuff. There isn't really a need to talk. So pre-2016, when did the need arise? When was there a feeling that there was a need for these different parts of the United Kingdom to talk to each other? Around what kinds of questions was that felt? I mean, the need does begin to emerge, I mean, even before the current period of turbulence, which I guess we can date from 2014, the Scottish independence referendum, or or maybe I would say 2011, when there's the majority SNP government in Scotland. I mean, you begin to see a number of different issues that arise, actually, because a lot of the demarcation lines are open to interpretation. One of the issues that arises is that legislation that's that's made and passed at Westminster, often that may appear to not relate directly to a devolved area, does have spillover effects and has consequences for it. 
That's particularly true because of the way in which funding is allocated around the UK. So you have this tourist mechanism, the Barnet formula, which means that a lot of the funding that goes to devolved government is determined by spending levels in England. So there are some indirect consequences. Then there's also what technicians call the, the jagged edge, the, the fact that it's actually very difficult in some areas to really get a sense of the clear demarcation. And you find there are a number of conflicts. I mean, there's a one of the first cases that arises that actually goes into the the legal domain, goes to the Supreme Court, is over the regulation of agricultural wages in Wales. And there's a split because it looks to the UK government as if it's that's its responsibility, but to the Welsh government, it's a devolved area. And I think the wider political aspect of this is that to the devolved, even before actually there's an SNP majority government in Scotland, to the devolved, it looks as if the UK is rather ungenerous or overbearing in its interpretation of where those lines should be drawn. And again, I go back to the point of the absence of a sense of partnership ethos here. This is just not part of the idea, the spirit in which devolution was undertaken. I think it's really quite striking that if you go back to the the third Labour government, so the government between 2005-2010, you can see quite a lot of union issues playing themselves out to some difficulty. Obviously, there's the instances where legislation is passed, which only affects England, which is without a majority of English votes, the on foundation hospitals and tuition fees. But you've also got significant pressure, both in Scotland and Wales, for there to be more devolved powers. And usually those arguments are made around matters, particularly in Scotland, to do with fiscal powers and the way that the Barnet formula plays out in relation to the ability of Scotland or not to raise taxes for itself. If you look at the position that the parties are in by the the 2010 general election, even the Conservatives, which had started being quite an anti-devolutionist party, have had to accept that devolution is permanent. But they are already, by 2010, making promises about there being a, a referendum for Wales on more devolved powers. They're making promises about implementing a commission that might well remember the, the name of where there are going to be more fiscal powers for Scotland that in the end becomes a legislation passed in 2012. So I think even well before, as Mike says, we get to the Scottish majority government in 2011, we can see how fraught it's becoming. And I would also just say that on the issue that Mike's raised about the partnership question, it's pretty difficult to have partnership once you have a party that is the largest party in Scotland that is actually secessionist. And the idea then that there's going to be cooperation between Westminster and Edinburgh starts to take on a a very different meaning than if it were the case that you had a unionist party would have a persuasion in power in Scotland. I do agree with that. It does that does change the nature of the game. I mean, there's a it's an interesting question of whether that makes the absence of a sort of previously developed machinery and culture of engagement more problematic because it's more difficult to deal with the SNP from the perspective of London government. But I think that is a very important period that you're talking about there, Helen, more generally, because it's very striking that the Conservatives or the balance of thinking, the centre of thinking in the Conservative Parliamentary Party is moving down a devolutionist track, having been initially pretty sceptical. That's a very striking period, which extends, I would argue, into the coalition period and uh, some of the other reforms that the coalition tried to develop for extending devolution in Scotland, putting the Welsh model on this primary legislative basis, which is quite similar to Scotland, changes in Northern Ireland, and also trying to develop a model of devolution in England. 
And that trend in conservative thinking, there's a shift away from it subsequently into the current period and a different kind of unionism begins to take hold again. It's also quite dramatic, though, the shift from 2010 to 2011. So I'd forgotten that the SNP only won six seats in the 2010 general election. And yet within a year, they were the majority governing party in Holyrood. And that shift, as seen from Westminster in 2010, it still looks like the parties of the union within Westminster politics are dominant. And it's the collapse of Labour, isn't it? It's the collapse of Labour in Scotland that creates a dynamic which then plays out through the decade, through the Scottish independence referendum, then on to Brexit, even now through to the pandemic. And the signal of that is from 2010 to 2011. That is, I think, absolutely a key factor. You know, the Labour's collapse in Scotland has a number of different ramifications. And it, first of all, it, it ushers in a majority SNP government and a government that, unlike its predecessor, that of Alex Salmond, which was a minority government and wasn't really in a position to push the constitutional question, well, after 2011, not only is that very prominent, but there's an immediate sense that Westminster has to respond And Cameron does. Cameron feels that actually, I think he does this partly for tactical reasons, because he thinks he'll win a referendum and call the SNP's bluff. But also, I think, as a point of principle, recognising the implications of that result of a majority nationalist government. But then, in another way, Labour's absence is very important there, because it, it is no longer able to be the party that credibly looks as if it's going to have representation across Scotland Wales and into England. And I think that really does destabilise the politics of unionism quite considerably. I I think that there's a difference that needs to be drawn between the complacency of UK governments and the Conservative Party around the possibility of Scottish secession and the complacency around the way in which the union worked. I mean, I would say that by 2010, there's quite a reasonable awareness in the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats when they form the coalition agreement that all is not well with the political mechanics of the union. What I think none of them have really considered as a possibility is that the SNP is going to be a majority government in Edinburgh by the time of the next general election. And that is both a function, as Mike said, of not understanding how fragile Labour's position had become in Scotland and of the fact that the electoral system in Scotland for the Scottish Parliament elections was supposed to, in the way in which people understood how it worked, preclude the possibility of majority governments. And once you have a leader of the Labour Party in Ed Miliband, who at that time shows no awareness really of the issues in Scottish politics and really treats that 2011 parliamentary election as part of the struggle at Westminster with the Conservatives, and the way in which the electoral system works, it doesn't actually need so much movement as people had thought in order to get to the SNP majority position. I would say then that complacency, though, about the risk of secession actually continues all the way through to 2014, that Cameron thinks that he can accept the legitimacy of the referendum without actually having to put the unionist case for the union continuing it. He treats it to begin with until they all go scuttling off to Scotland to make the vow as something that Scotland's business and not a matter for the UK government, which is an astonishing, absolutely staggering, astonishing position 
for the UK government to have taken in that as if somehow the union was only of matter to Scotland. So I think that the union, how it works, there's quite a strong awareness of, but the complacency about the risk of secession just runs on. I think that there are different objects of complacency there. I think that is a very good point. There are also some interesting connections between the complacency about the secession risk and then this different kind of complacency that's almost hardwired, if you like, into the way in which British government works about the union itself. These things come together, actually, around the 2014 referendum. And in particular, I mean, we look in the report at how Whitehall tried to sort of gear itself up, how it tried to get its ducks in a row in order to campaign, to get itself ready to campaign and to gear the government machine up to fight this potentially existential threat. It's really striking how difficult Whitehall found it to do that. You know, what it ended up doing is what it always does is cobbling together a team from different departments because it's very difficult to sort of re-engineer the machinery in moments of crisis. It pulls people together. It finds that it there is no pre-existing positive case for the UK. I mean, that just hasn't had to be made in this way. And so it pulls together a case which is rather caricatured as Project Fear, but in some ways does present the benefits to the Scottish people of staying in. And also, undoubtedly, there's a negative side to that about what secession would mean. But I think it's very striking how difficult it found that challenge in a kind of institutional way and culturally. And then also, if you look after the referendum, given that things got very sticky for the unionist side in the run-up to the referendum, with that infamous poll showing a lead for leaving a couple of weeks beforehand, then what happens afterwards? Well, things sort of rather go back to the way they were. There is some sense of worry that now, and Cameron certainly feels this strongly, that things need to change in terms of a priority be given to the union. But actually, it's very striking how things fall back into their pre-existing pattern. And so this tells us something quite fundamental, I think, about the way in which that complacency about the union works within the structures of British government. The two big challenges to the complacency then are Brexit and the pandemic. And there is a growing awareness that there has to be some means, if not a partnership, at least of coordination for different reasons, Brexit and the pandemic create very different kinds of challenges. You describe it in the report. Where do you think the really acute pressure points were? Where was the awareness most sharp that it wasn't possible to carry on with that kind of muddly approach that had been in place before? I think that awareness actually arises in or or bursts through almost in, in fits and starts at different points in the whole process in relation to Brexit. I mean, there's clearly a very key moment when the UK government figures out what its policy stance is going to be, what Theresa May's sort of red lines are going to be. And once it's clear that that involves leaving the single market and the customs union, I mean, it's very difficult at that point. It's undoubtedly going to be very difficult to manage relationships with Scotland and Wales, which take a very different policy position. Even if the UK government hadn't gone down that line, I think it would have been extremely difficult to do that, particularly in the Scottish case, given the result in Scotland, but also the Welsh government does take a sort of anti-Brexit stance. So this then, I think, comes through at different moments. I mean, there's a there are some key points here in terms of the Miller case, where the, the Scottish and Welsh government 
are involved in trying to sort of take a legal route to assert their the rights of the devolved governments. But also, I think even more importantly, there's a point when in passing the legislation that's required to take the UK out of the EU, the Sewell Convention is broken on three occasions, actually, in all. Now, the Sewell Convention is the convention that the UK government will seek the consent of the devolved legislatures if it is going to proceed to legislate in an area that falls within their competence, which this clearly does. And, you know, part of the kind of mystique almost of devolution was that that unwritten convention would never actually be broken. It was almost unimaginable that a British government would get itself in a position that it would override that because in the devolved context, that's an incendiary thing to do. I think it's a really revealing episode because in Westminster, which is very focused on the Brexit question and on trying to find a way through that, the Sewell issue barely registers. I mean, it's hardly even part of the debate. Scotland and Wales, it is absolutely incendiary. So I think that's a very big moment. And then I think more generally, there are these quite technical but important issues about what happens when some of the powers return from Brussels, particularly that come back to the UK, but particularly when they are those powers that fall in the devolved responsibility. And there's an ongoing spat between British government and the devolved governments about who should hold those first, should the UK government hold them and then release them steadily once it's figured out how it wants to set up its new internal market in the UK. And that causes immense conflict behind the scenes and really alienates the Welsh government, which remember is a is a unionist government, but which is increasingly inclined to cooperate with the SNP-led Scottish government. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I think the two things are somewhat different from each other because the implication of taking the, the Saw Convention seriously through the Brexit debate was that Scotland in particular, and with a government that was committed to leaving the union should have a veto over either Brexit happening at all or the form that Brexit took. And I just can't see that any UK government could accept that position, particularly in the political context of the internal battle within the whole United Kingdom that was going on about Brexit and whether it should happen or not. I think that what we can see from the second set of issues around the internal market was that once you took United Kingdom out of the the European Union, then it absolutely had to have big constitutional implications for the union because you had to have a debate about where these powers, as Mike said, were now going to be put. So in that sense, Brexit had to be internally destabilising. And it would have been internally destabilising to the union, regardless of the fact that there was a government in Scotland that, in name at least, wanted to pursue the independence project. And I think some of these things were also complicated by the fact that the very nature of Brexit and its implications for the project of Scottish independence very quickly caused internal divisions at the top of the SNP. So even before Alex Salmon and and Nicola Sturgeon were falling out about other things, you can already see really by the autumn of 2016 that they have got very different strategic approaches in mind to how the SNP should deal with trying to realise some form of independence project in the context of Brexit. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Over the past year, you can then add two more things to the mix. The pandemic has revealed the need in some very important areas for more coordination for at least the heads of the devolved governments and the Westminster government and their various ministers and officials to talk to each other, to communicate around the pandemic. And at the same time, Mike, you identify in the report, I think you call it a new brand of assertive unionism, that the Johnson government is very conscious of the need to make the case for the union, but that's also politically become a different kind of assertiveness about unionist politics indeed about Westminster politics, the language of sovereignty. And presumably these things are connected. There's both more pressure on the current arrangements through the pandemic. And there's also much more of an awareness in the Johnson government of the need for something to counter that. I think the pandemic does create a very different kind of challenge for the existing arrangements. If you cast your minds back, take us back to what seems like a completely different world, you know, the onset of the of the pandemic. And in the early phases of its emergence and then the different governments beginning to respond to it, there was a pretty effective degree of coordination between them. And in fact, I, I remember there was quite a lot of commentary that was expressing the hope that, you know, maybe after all the toxicity and division of Brexit, maybe the pandemic, the upside might be this will be a unifying moment and that in the face of a common threat, an airborne virus that clearly doesn't respect the kind of borders that people have been obsessing about, you know, maybe this will bring people and governments together and it hasn't clearly worked out like that. For a while, it did look fairly promising and it was interesting the through the COBRA meetings and in the cabinet office, the devolved leaders were involved in those processes uh, There's quite a lot of sharing of scientific um, expertise as well in that initial period. And there was a sense that actually it was important to coordinate those responses and to keep moving together on this. But actually also, even in that first period, there was a perception, and I think a bit of shock actually, in British government that the leaders of the devolved governments looked as if there was a sense that they were very keen to present themselves for very good political reasons to their domestic audience as making their own decisions. And that sometimes led to spats about things being pre-announced by these other governments that the British government felt it wasn't ready to release. The British government gets increasingly scratchy about this. I think one of the motivations there is Boris Johnson's own discomfort at the idea that suddenly he's almost on a par with these other leaders because he's making decisions for England, they're making decisions for their own territories. And the idea that somehow 
he suddenly looks like the Prime Minister, not of the whole UK, but of England, I, I think has a very big role in this, uh, not just for Johnson. I think there's a sort of degree of psychological shock, actually, within British government at the discovery of the implications of devolution, because most of the key powers in relation to these decisions were held by the devolved governments. So that that process then begins to break down when the British government takes the decision that it doesn't want to you know, make that coordinated system, which it thinks has political downsides. It doesn't want to make that work. That particularly becomes apparent as we move out of lockdown and then decisions begin to be announced at different timescales and you see a greater policy divergence, though in truth there'd always been slightly different approaches taken by the governments. There's no doubt, going to your second point, that there's an element of this is fired by a different kind of unionism. I think it's really hard to judge how deeply this runs, if you like, at the level of ideology. But you can track back through the recent years in the Conservative Party, I think, a growing scepticism about devolution. I mean, that was, I think, there from the beginning. But also a sense that in some real way, the British state had become too inhibited and too absent from the devolved territories. And that actually devolution had ended up taking it out of the consciousness and the awareness of citizens outside England. So you see different reasons why some Conservatives begin to argue for a more, that unionism needs to be more publicly asserted and demonstrated. Others, it should be said, are anxious about the implications of this in what is an increasingly febrile political situation. Yeah, I think that what you can see on the, the first issue is the implications once, as Mike says, it's been absorbed of the fact that the UK government has to act as the English government. And it isn't, in the end, actually just about health, but it's about education too, because that's also a devolved area. And by last summer, education was very much to the fore in the politics of the pandemic. And I think that as the UK government became more unpopular in relation to the actions that it was taking during the pandemic, you can see that party competition effectively sets in and those adversarial party dynamics really come to the fore. And you would expect that when it's the case that the Conservative Party is in power in London, essentially Labour in Cardiff and the SNP in Edinburgh. We do not have a constitutional system in this country, regardless of whether it's at Westminster or in the different bits of the union that are set up to do cross-party cooperation, not for the length of time that this pandemic has gone on for what you can see then within the Conservative Party is that some of that older scepticism about devolution that they really shelved by 2010, albeit somewhat grudgingly, really returned to the, the fore. As Mike says, not in a way in which everybody in the Parliamentary Conservative Party or the Cabinet is now taken with the muscular unionism position. But if the Conservative Party has as its principal political opponent, which it now seems to do, given Labour's weakness, is the SNP, that it can't constantly be on the back foot. And the idea that the SNP and Scottish nationalism can be appeased by simply giving ever more powers to Scotland seems to have, from the Conservative point of view, run its course. Mike, as you say, one of the consequences of the last year is this slightly sort of shocked discovery in Westminster that when the devolved administrations assert themselves, they almost by default create this thing, which is a kind of not English devolution, but English government, which is what's left. We haven't talked in this series yet 
specifically about England's relationship to the Union. It's almost too big a question, but we will come to it. But over this period, we have discovered that there is a sort of way in which Englishness as at least a domain of UK governance emerges from the mist, not because anyone's designed it like that or even wants it to be like that, but because it's the thing that just remains when the other politicians have asserted their rights under the devolution arrangements. Does it have any more positive qualities than that? Is there a, has there emerged in recent months or years even any clearer sense of what it would be to govern England within the UK? I think it is undoubtedly true that the the sense that a government of England has has appeared through the mists of the workings out of the processes of devolution is important. It's almost as if, as somebody's put it, this has happened by a process of subtraction. You know, the more devolution happens elsewhere, you can the more by de facto parts of the of Whitehall are effectively making decisions for England, but they don't see themselves or announce that they are doing that. This is a very a complicated question because there are two other currents that are that are flowing into this as well. One is that prior to this whole episode, and Helen, I think, mentioned this before, there has been an attempt, there's been one attempt in the recent past to offer some kind of constitutional response to England's position within the Union. And that was the introduction of English Votes for English Laws, EVIL, as the it's unfortunately acronym, after the Scottish independence referendum led by the Conservative Party and the coalition government. There's quite a big debate about that. And if you remember, Cameron makes a point of announcing that something needs to be done for England straight after the result of the Scottish referendum is announced. And it's interesting that that leads to quite, a, quite an intense, quite a fraught debate politically motivated debate because the Conservatives are much more comfortable and have given some thought to that sort of issue. Labour and the Lib Dems find that extremely difficult and find it very hard to amount a response. And that leads to a reform that in the end has been a bit of a damp squib, um, a very complex Byzantine set of rules that effectively only kick in on bits of legislation in the Commons that, that only affect England not very un- well understood by most MPs and certainly not loved by them. But it should be noted that that perhaps has created almost a sort of buried landmine, because if we ever get to a point where there is an election of a government that doesn't have a majority in England, but is still the government of the UK, that will kick in, that will become very important. But the other current that feeds in is that there have been attempts to deliver what's been called English devolution, which is really at a subnational level, This goes back to the point about Labour's failed regional project. The idea that there should be something, if you like, in the middle level in England, that that's what devolution is going to look like, is picked up by the Conservatives and the coalition. And this model of that we have now of combined authorities in some parts of the countries, led mostly by elected mayors, so people like Andy Burnham, that's where that model comes from. And it's actually George Osborne who invests quite significantly in developing that model, particularly in Greater Manchester, but also elsewhere in his Northern Powerhouse Project 2. That gives another answer. That's a different answer to the question of what would English devolution look like. It says it wouldn't happen at the level of England. It should happen within England. We need this. We need something between central and local government. And The thing about it is that this is a different kind of beast to devolution elsewhere. I'm not even sure 
if the term devolution is the right one to use. It's a kind of delegation. These are bodies that are created, designed to deliver on the priorities of the central government, mostly concerned around regional economic disparity. They have powers, but fairly limited sources of powers. They have no legislative element to them. They do. It's not. A, it's not devolution in the sense that has been developed elsewhere. So you've got these different elements, a very complicated geography of authorities in England as a result. No clear answer to the question of what English government devolution should look like. And the two parties left really quite a distance. The two British parties left a long way apart in their thinking on this. So there's nothing coherent at the moment that has come out of this at all. I think it's kind of like a rerun of what happened with Labour in the 90s and devolution, which is you don't have to give it too much strategic thought because you just assume that Labour is going to be the party in power in all these places and that what you see from the Conservatives after the 2014 referendum is some sense that there must be perception that something is being done about England, not least to stave off UKIP turning it into an issue. But again, it wasn't thought through because English Votes for English Laws was only dealing with the matter as a legislative issue. And even then you might say in a sort of compromised way as well. But if you were looking at it strategically, you would say, well, it was was blatantly obvious by 2015 that the issue of executive powers was going to come into play. I mean, after all, the whole reason why Welsh devolution had had to be reformed was because of the muddle between the executive and the legislative issues. So I think you can reasonably assume that for the Cameron government, because I think they were legislating after the, the 2015 election in practice, this only really becomes an issue if and when Labour return to power. So long as we, the Conservatives, are in power, we don't have to think about this question very seriously. But the implications are huge because if it had been the case that the Labour Party had won the general election in 2019 and then would have been acting through the course of 2020 with executive powers in England without an English majority, which would almost certainly have been the case, then we would have been experiencing this pandemic in a, in a whole other way where a constitutional crisis was concerned. It is odd, isn't it? Because when you think about it, one of the traditional features of the British state under our electoral system is that you do get sudden reversals of fortune. I mean, that's its point in a way. It's not a PR system. And for both the two main parties, Labour in the 90s, the Conservatives now, to somehow get into the mindset that it will be all right so long as it's always us is extraordinary. Yeah, staggering. Staggering. (laughs) And, and I think particularly so because, you know, in, in, in the recent past, we've seen the power in England as well as in Scotland of politics, which really highlights these issues. So if you remember the, um, the 2015 election campaign, those images of Ed Miliband in Nicholas Sturgeon's pocket, I mean, that that's a very powerful set of ideas to throw into a campaign. And, and they remain there dormant, but utterly available for political actors to play once more. So last question, big question, short answers. Mike, your report ends with some reflections about what might come next. And of course, there is a, a move afoot. It's often associated with Gordon Brown, but with others too, to really rethink the constitutional arrangements of this country, whether it involves a constitutional convention, but to try and grip this issue. But you also suggest there's another way of thinking about this, which a lot of this has to do with mindsets and culture and psychology and the way that Whitehall as well as Westminster operates. And 
what your report highlights is the lack of a culture of coordination and partnership. And you suggest there are some quite small things that might engender more of that. Do you think that a culture shift could stand in the way of a constitutional rethink at this point? I mean, I'd be wary of the idea that some of the things we're, we're suggesting would necessarily, uh, you know, are likely to provide answers to these sort of very profound challenges facing the UK Union, which ultimately I think are going to be determined in the realms of, of politics. Um, but I do think, and, you know, we set this out in the report, that it may be that there's, there's a role here for the state itself to play in thinking about its own engagement with the devolved governments. Also, perhaps behind that, I think there's a question here about, which has in a different way been posed by Brexit, of course, which is, you know, whether we have it at the centre, both in politics and in our administrative class, you know, do we have a group of people who really are engaged with and understand the country that they are governing in all of its splendid geographical diversity, but also the different kinds of lives and experiences that many people have. That lies behind our thinking that there might be some something to do here around cultural change as well as institutional change. I mean, think about cultural change in the civil service in this way. We've had a lot of debate recently about the kind of ways in which the civil service culture is deficient and there needs to be more emphasis on data analysis and, and foresight modelling and so on. It's interesting, and that's a recurrent argument of reformers. It's very rare that you hear the argument that perhaps we also need civil servants who really understand the way in which this very complicated way in which governance works in this country and the, the different institutions, not just of government, but public institutions work more generally and how the country itself operates. And it seems to me that there's as good as an argument to say that we need to inject that, to wire that into Whitehall and other tiers of government as well. You know, on the bigger question about does this stand in for those sort of big projects that people are arguing for, I think the answer is not. But all I'd say on those is that whilst a favoured answer of people who want a kind of middle way between defending the union as it is and break up, the idea that federalism, some federal solution is, is what we should be headed for. We need to know a lot more about how we would get to that and the, the big challenges that that faces, which are obviously the disproportionate size of England and how that would be dealt with in that model. And then I think even more than that, parliamentary sovereignty. Effectively, a federal model moves us decisively away from parliamentary sovereignty. How would that work? Would that gain popular assent? I mean, those charting a path through that, those arguments, is absolutely vital. And it's not at the moment clear how that would work. I think that the future of the union has to depend at a certain, at some point on Scottish voters giving it their consent again. And I think it's quite hard to make formal and administrative issues work so long as we're in a position where there is a party in Scotland that at least nominally is in favour uh, of independence and that that is the dominant party in Scotland. And the implication of that is that not only for the sake of the union, because at some point Scotland have to reconsent to it, there needs to be a recovery of the Labour Party. Wales is perhaps the most hopeful part of the union because the union requires there to be party contest. Now, on the one hand, you can say, well, look, Wales is the place where Labour's been in power for more than two decades, so it doesn't hold that possibility. But it is the place, as we were talking about 
last week, David, where there is something that looks more like multi-party politics than the other parts of the union. Let me pick up on that point about Wales. The Welsh government is also the government that's done probably the most creative thinking about these constitutional questions in recent years. I mean, partly driven by its own frustrations at the Brexit process, but it has put quite a lot of thought into developing a, an account of the union which has a a more federal, if not a fully federal, structure and culture within it. And I think whilst you know I wouldn't necessarily endorse all that they've argued, it seems to me that this is a really important point about trying to not just make the union a priority in government, which is clearly an extremely important thing in its own right, but uh, this is a time, a point of perhaps mortal threat, to come up with a picture, a vision of what the union is going to look like, which is going to command consent across the kind of voters that Helen's talking about there in Scotland, but also will reach into parts of England as well. And at the moment, I think that's one of the things that is really very obviously lacking in and around unionist politics. We will tweet the link to Mike's report, Union at the Crossroads, at tppodcast underscore. You can also find the link in our show notes. The current series of History of Ideas comes to an end this week. I'm talking about Judith Schlar on hypocrisy. You can get all 12 episodes if you just search for Talking Politics, History of Ideas. And if you'd like to support Talking Politics and get a version of this podcast without adverts interrupting in the middle of the conversation, it is really easy. Just follow the link to Talking Politics Plus wherever you get this podcast. Coming up on Talking Politics, we're going to be talking about Germany, where it's all kicking off in the race to succeed Angela Merkel. And we're going to be talking to Michael Lewis about who saw the pandemic coming. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.